Welcome to Word is Truth. Uh, my name is Doug Presley. It is January 20th, 2021. We're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this hour we have with you this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength. We pray for traveling mercies for those who are still on the busy roads uh, on their way home. We pray, uh, Father, as we have just mentioned, for Mike and family, that will be Deborah and Tanea, and for the loss of their son. We're asking for uh, comfort for their hearts and so that they will uh, be able to sort out all that they need to sort out and also for um, understanding as well, and uh, also for the uh, prevention of COVID, that they may not be sick um, in doing all that they have to do. So as we begin our worship service, we pray for wisdom, for the verses that will be before us. Help us to focus our attention so that you can show us what it is you need to tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, as you know, we are currently in Romans chapter 8. We are looking at verse 34, although we did have a short little part that I'll probably go over in 833, but that won't take long. And then we'll be in 834. You should have notes as well. So we will get there. We'll do some little bit of Q&A. Excuse me, the floor is open. Okay, I just wanted to mention last Sunday during Q&A, we were talking about um, the different things that have happened in this world that we wonder if, if um, you know, what, what is the purpose that God has behind it when we see a lot of death happening all around, especially with the pandemic, and it's not the first time that something like this has happened. Um, and I, I can't remember exactly what verses that we were looking at. I probably have a note of it. I think we were... Yeah, I don't, I don't have a note of it. Which, um, go ahead. Which verse was it? But I wanted to admit, do you know what verses we what? were looking at last Sunday? You mean in, in John or just Q&A? Just in, in Q&A. I thought we were looking at Luke. Well, we did. We looked at, we did, we did look at Luke because we were talking about unless you repent, Jesus was mentioning to uh, the disciples, they will also perish. Uh, they could, right. it's possible. Right. Right. Uh, and then we, we I think we gener generally talked about some things in Genesis. We talked about the uh, antediluvian world. We talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. So there were several things. Mm -hmm. uh, I know we made reference to some scriptures as well. Yeah. I just wanted to mention while we were talking about things like that, but, um, you know, the, just the idea came up in my head that, um, you know, disasters around the world 
happened, such as September 11th and the, the Twin Towers in New York. Yes. On, uh, well, all that transpired on that day, Pentagon and everything. And um, as, as significant as those events were um, in helping us to realize that it, it really is the world under, the, under Satan's control, um, it's interesting that a lot of people turn toward God when, uh, when things like that happen. And um, even after 9-11, there was a significant increase in, in church attendance. And um, I just wanted to, to mention that. There was um, quite a few churches, and I think there was some, I can't remember their names now, but there was certain um, church leaders that were getting a lot of um, get their names in the press and everything because of the the amount of work that they were doing on behalf of those that were affected by these disasters. Yes. Same thing with natural disasters. Tornadoes mm-hmm. and hurricanes go through. I'm always surprised when I see this. Not not surprised, <laughs> but I'm I'm always um, noticing that when you know the the news cameras on these people that have gone through this. Well, they're witnessing this, and they're they're saying, "Oh my God, oh my God," mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it it you know it's like it's almost like a wake up call for bringing them to that level of understanding or that level of um, consideration and and um, and why these events are happening and and who we are in comparison to them. Absolutely, absolutely. Definitely something to consider. In fact, we know that the blood of the martyrs uh, inspired many to convert to Christianity in the early church. Uh, through, so through the many sacrifices that were made uh, through martyrdom, a lot of people were converted. In fact, Satan realized that he could not kill the church. But the more he killed, he, if he killed one Five more would spring up, so it was um, it was futile, you know, for him to continue to try to persecute the church in that way. So, so you have a, you're making a decent point for sure, no doubt about it. But did you have more? Uh, I'll pause. Um, not on that subject. Um, basically, well, a little bit. One more thought on that. I think we, even though we see a significant swell in the population of church attendance, um, I don't think it's always, I think it's sometimes or it's often short-lived for a lot of, for a lot of people once, you know, especially if they're in the environment where they're starting to recognize that they're, they're following the leadership of an, of a human organized religion. And so that, that sense of something spiritual going on is not necessarily sustained in regular church attendance that's, you know, following uh, rituals and, and that sort of thing. So the spiritual depth is, is, is I think, missing in a lot of churches, and, and it's unfortunate that people who turn to the church in times of need uh, eventually walk away not finding what they were looking for. Absolutely, that's unfortunate. Unfortunate. Uh, I think we can we can certainly say that this world 
is antagonistic toward God. So Holy, the Holy Spirit has a big job in making sure that everybody has equal opportunity, equal privilege to be able to, uh, you know, to give them a witness of who Christ is internally. So, but uh, there is another point I think I was thinking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. So just to note, we are in this world. And this, as it is, we are under the curse. And the curse is dying, you will die. And so what does that mean? It means dying, well, spiritual death, you will die, and the resultant physical death. That is the, uh, the, the verb muth in the Hebrew. And that's what it means. So we say we are under spiritual death with its resulting physical death. And we know God uh, comes to reverse those things that happened in the bad news. So as a reversal of spiritual death, we have new life. As a reversal of physical death, we have the resurrection. Now, of course, the resurrection hasn't happened for anybody yet. So we still see in this world people who are born spiritually dead and with the resulting, they will die physically. Um, so that is the case. Now, of course, it is our objective to help people come to the knowledge of the truth in terms of salvation and that will they'll be born again. But just note, that resurrection part, even for those who believe, still is not here yet. So death is going to be a part of our experience in this world. Now, if you go out 200 years right now from, from today, let's go 200 years, none of us, and most likely none of the people who are on this earth right now will be alive. There'll be some reason why they're, they have left this earth. There'll be some reason why, whether it be uh, disease, war, famine, suicide, whatever it is, old age, they will leave this earth as a result of the, the curse of Adam. So imagine if it's... You know, we're, we're in heaven and, and we're talking and we say, well, so how did you go? Oh, well, how did you go? I don't think we're going to even say that, you know, because I think we will be so overwhelmed with what is in front of us that we won't worry about the things of death anymore. And yes, there are horrible ways that we can, from our perspective, would say uh, to die, but... Once, once it happens, you pass from, from life to presence with the Lord. So just remember the thought. Everybody dies. Everybody. You, you, there's no passes given unless you're the last generation. Uh, and that's the only way we could see it. So I, just, I wanted to add that. But go right ahead, Dwight. So, Dwight, do you uh, think that the, uh, and I'm only, I'm referring to uh, sudden tragedies and 911, I'm referring to when church membership increased. Uh, do you, what do you think was the motivation? Was it fear 
And if it was fear, um, they, is that why they, they, in other words, what do you think the motivation was for them to return? Uh, because they, was it fear of God? I'm talking about something that, what was their motivation? What do you think? For all of a sudden, you know, in this, you know, we we got we had we lost like three thousand people in our in a day, and um, was it patriotism? I don't think there was something underlining underlining there was an underlining thing, and it had to do with God and their security that they is what I'm thinking that they flocked to the churches. But like you said, it didn't last. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, this is just my opinion, and I'm not really basing it on any particular source that I can name. Um, just what I, I think may have happened. But I, I certainly, let me start by saying that I certainly do not see it as a sign of patriotism. I don't think there's a human element in it that like that. I think what what happened to a lot of people in that kind of situation, I think definitely fear is an overriding emotion um, to what they are experiencing. And the biggest um, element in that fear is the loss of control. The the realization that, wow, we are really not in control. I mean, who, who would have ever thought that the Twin Towers would be destructible? I mean, it was just a, a symbol of solidity um, and determination and hard work and all that stuff that went into creating those things. Um, and, and also the, the businesses and the people that worked in them. And to have that ripped out from underneath unexpectedly in a, in a matter of seconds. Um, I mean, the whole thing from the very first plane to the to the uh, to the crumbling of the towers, I think, was within a couple of hours, um, not that long at all. Um, so I I think it was definitely an overriding fear um, based on the loss of control that was mostly it, and wanting some protection and answer, and and just look comfort would be the other thing. And just feeling so distraught and that they just wanted connection with another human being um so there's a lot of humanity in it but not at the level of just you know formal handshaking and making acquaintances or something um, more meaningful than that so that that's just my opinion but i think that's what most of it came from and that might be one of the reasons you know the contributing factors to why it didn't last is because the emotion didn't last. Um, so over over a period of months or something, um, weeks, months, years, the fear is not that great anymore, and you realize that you're not getting the answers from a lot of churches that are out there that we wanted. Um, so you, you know, I, I think there may have been some disappointment in some of the human churches. I know I personally had not a disaster that brought me into the church, but I've, I've personally had the disappointment of being in a human organized religion and um, just not getting the truth, the consistency, 
that we get here while we're studying the word, you know, word by word, praise by praise. just add a couple just one thought to I think you guys pretty much have it covered only I think you're hitting around what I was thinking as well is that death brings the reality of eternity in view uh, a lot of times people are living in this world and they have no thought of what, what what's next what's going to be my eternal destiny no thought Especially if you're young, you know, you, you just think you're healthy and strong, you'll live forever. But when somebody dies, it's right there in front of you, it brings the reality of eternity. And people, the only way uh, that people can orient to that is God. Now some people don't orient to God, they run from God. It's their, their choice, but it is an opportunity for God to... To bring to bear what uh, the issues of eternity are, and that's exactly what uh, people begin to make choices about, and that could be a reason for church membership. But uh, often, I think you, someone said uh, that dies down, and then people go back to whatever they were doing. But uh, that moment of eternity. Uh, like what happened with uh, John chapter 11. Jesus was at the grave of Lazarus. It was such a surreal moment. And, and then he spoke those words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. And he turned to them and he said, do you believe this? So it's a moment to reflect on the eternal reality. So death does bring that. Yeah, that's just my thought. All right, so that's certainly it. What we'll do? If I, if I can just add to oh, that. Oh, go right ahead. With what you were you were saying, Doug, I think that's where. And the Holy Spirit is actually working inside somebody. So it's not necessarily somebody's own, you know, human processing that's saying, you know, what is this about mortality and eternity? I think it's, it's them coming to a place where they are being, they're open to influence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is convicting them of, of what the um, 
of what's going on. Uh, absolutely. I think that's a combination of both. A person coming to grips with morality as well, as you said, the Holy Spirit is has an opportunity to witness to their souls as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for for adding that. Yeah, I, I think um, it is a grave time, and that's what we think about. And we, the matter of life and death is a serious matter. I think it, one analogy I gave in uh, the paper that a book I'm writing, I'm trying to write, was uh, how people, uh, they're, they're concerned about uh, matters of life and death when they go out and get life insurance. They make sure they have life insurance because they want to provide for those who, uh, in the event that they leave this life, that those people will not struggle. So they're looking past their death, and they're, ta they're, they're focusing on those who are behind them, their loved ones. So you have to say, yeah, for people to go out and think about getting life insurance, how much should they get, you know, how much it costs, uh, you know, all those things, is for them to think about eternity. Like, what's going to happen when they leave? Not so much, okay, I'm going to heaven or, or someplace else, but it does stop a person and say, well, you know, I might have to die. What happens if I do? And, uh, and what, what the point I'm making, obviously, is if you can stop for a moment and plan uh, because you want to take care of your loved ones, what about you? What are you gonna, what's going to happen with you after you depart? People should take some time to think about what's going to happen to their own soul as well. So we need to deal with that. And this is why we're here, to bring that reality to people. A lot of times they don't want to hear it. They don't want to get into it. But that is the reality that we bring to the table. And partly you could see why people don't want to talk about it. They'd like to talk about anything else but that. So in one way... Uh, it, it, we can use life insurance as a way to hopefully jog their memory to think about matters of life and death. Other thoughts before we move on into Romans? I'm good. Thank you very much for filling in. Cool. Yep, thank you very much. And thank you, thank you both for, for the input. I really appreciate that. All right, so we're going to head into Romans. You've got notes. Uh, in front of you, I hope. If not, you can listen in. But uh, we're going to look at... Oh, we, we did say we we're going to look at the end of Romans 8.33. So Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Well, we went through the first three points, and we got down to this last point. It is God... Who justifies. So I'm just going to go through some of the thoughts. So God the Father who justifies, that's the one who literally justifies us. So it's an important step in our calling. And remember the, this, the verse that we went over in verse 29, and those he predestined, verse 29 and 30, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. 
those he justified, he also glorified. That's eight, Romans 8.30. So it's God the Father who does that. So if we're asking the question, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, God's not going to be the one. God the Father's not going to be the one. He's the one who justifies us. To be justified means that we receive the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to our account. And once we receive that imputation, the justice of God sees that and declares that we are justified forever. Another way to say what does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous forever. I have to add the forever part because some people think you could be unjustified, which it's not a biblical term or thought, but it is it is the thought in some people's minds. And some somebody has told me that before. Well, you I said, well, you justify forever, and they said, no, you you could be unjustified. It's unjustified, <laughs> especially in the light of there is no condemnation, right, and all that. How do you, how will God reverse? Did God make a mistake when he justified us? So now he has to unjustify. He didn't know what, I don't know. It just does not make logical sense. So in any case, that is the thought. God is the one who justifies. Let's move in to point B. The matters, right, because of the father found them dead in Adam. This matters. This, this is important. We saw Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where, you know, it says um, how we were dead in our transgressions and sins like the rest. You know, we were by nature objects of wrath. And for God to justify us, that says something about who we are. And if you continue with five in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, he says he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Who did that? God the Father did that. So certainly God the Father is not going to be the one to reverse some decision that he's made on our behalf. That's absolutely out of the question. So that, that cer certainly is not something that we can, we can uh, attribute to God. And then point C, it is especially seen by the Jew or Gentile justification. There is no difference. So if you look at Romans 3, 19 through 24, it talks about the terms uh, by which we are justified. It has nothing to do with the law. We know by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Jews don't keep the law, and then for some uh, strange reason God justifies them. It doesn't work that way. God says no one who keeps the law uh, can be, you can't be justified by keeping the law. That's the thought. So then when he says a Jew and Gentile alike are justified, there is no difference. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile in terms of justification. You know there's nothing to do with the law because Gentiles don't have the law. <laughs> it's clear. And then for those who do have the law, you have the statement right there. Therefore, therefore by doing what the law says, the works of the law, no person will be justified inside. Who's he talking about? The Jew. The Jew is the only one who has the law. 
in the first place. So the Jew can't be justified by being obedient to the law. He has to look away from all of that, and he has to turn his attention to Christ. And Christ alone can justify by believing in him. He has offered justification freely, just as freely as the Gentile person is offered it. Point D, it is more than justification. Those he justified, he also glorified. So we know that in that chain in Romans 8.30 we just read earlier, it's not just that he justified somebody. And, okay, what the the weird thought, oh, he could be unjustified. No, what happens next is the person is justified and then he is glorified. Everybody who or is justified in this age is also glorified. That's the Father's plan, that we are glorified. There's, he's not going, let me rethink this justification, you know, and this, not hardly, that is not the case. Put that out of your mind. I, I could say it like Paul said, God forbid that you should think such a thing. So the conclusion, point E then, logically, is that the Father is for us. There's no, no other conclusion you can come to. If he did that, if he justified us, certainly there's no conclusion that would make any sense for him to reverse his opinion. Okay, so we, we're going to move forward into Romans 8.34. And uh, this is also your notes. So Romans 8.34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. <laughs> the answer is right there. Christ Jesus who died. He gives, he gives explanation. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. All right, so let's break it down a little bit, see what we can get from this verse. So who then is the one who condemns? No one. And we got a few points on this. So we already answered the thought of who can who can condemn, right? We, we dealt with that. We said, oh, um, you know, people, Satan wouldn't want to condemn us. He can't. Um, we said, what about the Jews, Israel? Well, certainly they would have some objection, and we'll deal with that in a minute. What about us? We could condemn ourselves, right? Because we don't want to follow the Father's plan. We don't agree. Right? We, we offered some reasoning about who could condemn. So this is, uh, we could offer whatever reasoning we want, but the answer is here. No one. We, we don't have to think about it. It's there, right? So it brings clarity uh, to this, the table. No one is the answer from the word of God. So really, what, what are we going to find here? Right? We're going to find that there's some discussion going on, that Paul is building a straw man for a reason. So point B, we discussed those who could possibly condemn us. Right? We, we, we went through that. And let's just say who, it, who could possibly condemn us if it were to happen. Well, it would be... Uh, the Father and the Son. Both are excluded, as we have seen, and we will get into Christ in a minute, for sure. Uh, Christ is the one who died. That's the, the, the next phrase that we're going to get into. So 
is the Father. We can't use the Father to condemn us. He would never change his mind. What about Christ? Well, he not only did he uh, offer his life, he died for us, and he lived for us. So he won't do it, and we're, we're going to get to that reasoning in a minute. But if there was anybody who could possibly condemn us, it would be the Father, it would be the Son, and I, I would dare say the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is in us, but his job is to glorify Christ. So I, I don't think anywhere there, any person from the Trinity would be able to change the Father's plan. Let's get into this thought. Point C, mainly, this is where this whole thing really is. The reference here is to Israel, the Jews. Just as in the previous context in Romans, he, he thinks like a Jew and he comes up with their objections only to magnify the truth. Now just think about this. Paul has done this over and over and over in Romans. Even in the verses we read in Romans 3, where he, he says, Therefore, by the works of the law, no flesh. Or if we jump back to verse 9, are, are we any better? We Jews? No. God has said, you know, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. There's none righteous, not even one. So all of that is to help the Jew understand that he needs Christ the Savior. He cannot justify himself. Even though he has the law, he cannot, uh, by keeping the law, have favor with God. That's a, lot, that's a hard thing for religious people to understand. Because they'll grab a hold of some commandment or something that they feel is pleasing to God if, we, if they do it. And man, they will develop some self-righteousness around that thing. You, it's hard to pull that away. It's worse than a dog trying to pull a bone away from a dog. Because they will fight to keep, to let you know that they have earned something with God and God owes them something. He does not. We are talking grace here. Grace is free. It doesn't cost us nothing. It costs... Even it costs them nothing. And they're the ones working very hard for it. So it's really about the Jews. And, you know, he, Paul, being a Jew, even Romans 6, a good, a good example, Romans 6, what does he say? Uh, okay, then, he says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Well, where did he get that from? He's getting that from the thinking of what would a Jewish person think about what I have been teaching here? What would they say? And Paul is then, he uses that to say, okay, all right, let's, let's use what they're thinking and let's teach what is the truth about it. What it ultimately does is it magnifies the truth. And I said this when we were going through Romans 3 and 4. I said, if you can get a hold of these scriptures, Romans 3 and 4, then you have a good foundation because if you can understand it from the Jewish perspective, being a Gentile, then you certainly understand it from the bottom up. Every, every detail. Because the Jews had a religious mind, so Paul is always bringing that forward. So that's what he's mainly doing. He's taking the objections. What does he say in Romans 7? Ah, I'm speaking to you who know the law. So that the law only has authority over a person as long as 
they live. But if he dies, the husband dies, the wife is released from the law of bound. He's talking to Jews. He's he's thinking like a Jew. He's trying to bring their perspective to what he has been teaching. Now, I'm just saying this to because it is a point to make. It's a point for everybody here. When you teach people, and all of you will be doing this because you'll be giving the gospel, anticipate what the objections to what you teach will be and already have answers to those objections. Right? Think about what you, what you teach and how would a person perceive what you're saying, right? What, what would their response be? That's all Paul is doing. He's taking, he knows what the Jewish mind is, and he's turning that around to say, okay, so they're going to answer this. Let me show you why that's not the right answer, and let me show you even more why this is the answer. So it's an opportunity for you as well who teach, who want to present the gospel as an ambassador of Christ. And it's it, it definitely works, right? It, it gets you thinking. It gets you engaged in, you know, how how could this be? Like, what is God really, really trying to say here? So it makes you dig down into and, and, and make sure you understand the word. So so that, that was point C, right? It's a reference to Israel. Really, as we go forward in the context, you, you need to see that Paul is con he's really talking about Israel. He's going to explain it because Israel objects to the church, period. That, that is how you're going to see it. Is, is, they were the chosen people. They were called. They were elect. And now, all of a sudden, God has changed his mind and said, uh, no, it's, you, you, we're putting Israel on hold, and I'm going to call out this church organization and this new body. And, and they're justified, and they're called, and they're chosen. And Jews said, foul. That's not fair. We are the chosen. How can you change in, in midstream now? We... How are you going to now adopt Gentiles? So God has to... Now, it, it'd be one thing if God said, shut up, I'll do what I want. No, but he doesn't do that. He explains himself. Wow, imagine that. He reasons with us. He could have just said, I don't owe you an explanation. I'm God. I don't have to tell you. You better just follow what I tell you to follow. And, and if, it, if I say it's this way, it is this way. Well, you know what it is, except God is gracious. He's kind. He's concerned about how we think about things. And again, we could also take a note from that. He doesn't just tell the Jew to shut up. He says, let me explain. And he takes the whole chapter, the rest of this chapter, and nine as well, to talk about it. And, and explain in detail to the Jews so that they don't have a leg to stand on, a reasonable leg to stand on. So let's keep going. Let's keep going. Uh, point number two, Christ Jesus who died, right? Who is he that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. So again, point A, the Jewish audience is to those believing Jews who reject the Father's plan. So think about it. Why would an unbelieving Jew who already rejects Christ, why would he care that Christ died? 
In fact, he was the one who was saying, crucify him, crucify him. We don't care about, he's an imposter. We don't believe in him. So who are we talking about here? We're talking about these Jews who do believe in Christ. Right? So it, it matters to them. Right? That's who we're dealing with. And for Paul to use this as an argument, well, it's Christ Jesus who died. By the way, he's the one who died. Don't look at him as someone who would condemn us or, or who would object to the Father's plan. Uh-uh. Christ Jesus died under the Father's plan. So we're talking to a Jewish audience here, a believing Jewish audience. Point B, Christ died means something to them, as we were just saying. So uh, it can be used to argue the point. Uh, we're going to move on to point C. If there was any who could object to the Father's plan, it would be, and, and these are the three, the Father, Christ, and the Spirit. So we already said the Father sent the Son. We already said the Son died, <laughs> and the Spirit is here to glorify Christ. So we know not any person in the Trinity would object to the Father's plan. And why would we say all this? Because God the Father did change his plan. He did. And so the Jew is stymied by this. Like, wait a minute. What do you mean the Gentiles can be in the same body with us? What do you mean that we are elect and chosen and all this other stuff? Uh, they, they can't, it's hard for them to comprehend what God has done. Okay, so point D, did God have a right to reveal the mystery? And that's the question. Is he sovereign? Could he do what he wants to do? And I think... We, we have to answer that question with the affirmative. Yes, he absolutely does. God, what well, we know what he did. He hid the mystery within himself. Uh, but he did not reveal it to the Jews, to Israel, but he reveals it to the church. And, and we think, oh man, okay, the disciples, we, we're studying in... Uh, on Sundays, John 14, 15, 16, 17. We're, we're in the middle of that now, in 15 somewhere. And Christ is laying down some principles in those chapters that are mind-blowing. Imagine, to the Jewish mind, how they perceive some of the things that Christ is saying. In fact, they accused him straight up of blasphemy. You are... A mere man. How in the world are you saying these things? So uh, this is very serious uh, information that we're going through on Sunday. And it, it is dovetailing to here. So now we can understand from Paul's perspective in Romans how he was teaching the Jew who objected to the Father's eternal purpose. That's what was happening. They, they were saying, no, foul. You can't do that. We're the, you know, you can't change it in the midstream like that. God is saying, yes, I can. I got it all figured out, and this is how it works. Yeah. So God did have a right to reveal the mystery. In fact, that is why we're here right now, because of the revelation of the mystery. So he is sovereign. He will answer those questions in good detail in the verses coming forward. So first of all, there will be no reversal. That's for sure. This is the plan. And the Jews will just have to get with the plan. 
They will have to suck it up with humility and swallow their pride and follow the Father's plan. You know, even when we think about the mystery and all that, the Jews had other problems. It wasn't just the fact that they rejected the Father's plan. They, it was hard for the Jew to accept salvation by grace. There was that whole thing about the law that they were really confused. Many Jews thought that because they had the law, that garnered them favor with God. They really had that as part of the thinking. It was embedded. And they thought if they could just obey the law. And they tried the hardest. And even though they knew they failed, they still thought, well, God knows that I'm trying hard. He knows who I am. I have the law, in fact. And you're telling me that I'm no better than those Gentiles, dogs over there? You're telling me I'm no better than them? And you know I have the law? You know I'm being obedient to it? At least partly. That has nothing to... Absolutely, and the answer is absolutely nothing to do with salvation. So they had... In Old Testament, Isaiah says they would trip on the stumbling stone and that, and that rock was Christ. Right? He's the rock of offense. And when he came... And, you know, it helped the Jew to understand and come back to the roots of the substitutionary sacrifice for their sins and the very gospel that was in their culture embedded in all of their feasts and holidays. It, it, it allowed them to see. And this is why John the Baptist came to call the nation to repentance. So, getting back to our notes here, we know that the Jews would condemn God and the church for saying the things that we say. We're called, we're chosen. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. We are His, uh, the apple of his eye right now. We are elect, we are adopted as sons. Right? All of that language now applies to us. Point number three in our notes, more than that. Now, what could be more than Christ died? Well, there's more. More than that, who was raised to life. A couple, just a couple thoughts there. Raised to life. The Father approved. He approves of the offering of Christ. And so it's a couple thoughts. We can break it down once we understand, especially when you understand propitiation. So when God raised Christ from the dead, that says that he approves of his offering. Because his him dying on the cross was an offering to God. And when when you think about it, you have to say, okay, Christ, you, you did a great job. You, you offered yourself, and, and you know you, you didn't respond to the insults. There's no guile in your mouth. You, you were sinless. Right? We can say all that. But guess who has to say that for real? God the Father. And the fact that he raised him from the dead is more than just the fact that, oh, he was going to give Christ new life. It also speaks of his approval of what Christ offered. And therein lies the word propitiation. 
So th that is exactly what it is. So 1 John 2, 2, he is the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Every sin of every person was, was poured out on Christ and judged. What does the Father think about it? He says, I'm satisfied with the work of Christ on not only believers' behalf, but for the, for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean that the people in the whole world will be saved, but I can tell you what, sin won't be an issue as to why they're not saved. Because God is satisfied with the work of Christ on their behalf. So, what is sin? Sin is transgression of the law. <laughs> well, then if sin is transgression of the law, that means that no person, it, it has nothing to do with keeping the law. If, all, if God is not looking at sins in terms of reconciliation. So we, it's got to be grace. Grace is free. It doesn't cost us anything. And nobody uh, put in to have their sins paid for. Right? Christ did it. The Father, it was in his plan to judge all sins in Christ. It wasn't up to us. We didn't, he didn't ask us, hey, would you like to have your sins atoned for? No, it was the plan of the Father. So by the time we woke up in 2000 or 1900 or whatever it was, it was done. It was finished already. It wasn't even something that is going on anymore. The sins have already been judged. Your sins, my sins. So the resurrection of Christ says for sure that the Father is satisfied with the work of Christ. And guess what that also means for us, the ones who, who, who had those sins? It means that our resurrection is also sure. It is absolutely a, a, a certainty because of what happened to Christ. If we put our faith in Christ... No sin can ever separate between us and God. And we are guaranteed the resurrection because Christ was raised. That says God approves of the risen Christ. All right, so, so that's the thought. That's what it means. And then Romans 3, 25 and 26. Is it just for us? No. I'll go ahead and read that one. Romans 3, 25 and 26 says... God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Yeah, and there's that word propitiation in the Greek. Uh, through the shedding of his blood, through his death, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So notice, righteousness is exacting, isn't it? God has to demonstrate that he's righteous. Suppose he didn't punish those sins in Christ, the ones who were committed before the cross. Suppose he just said, well, they were already committed. They were unbelievers. So I don't have to judge their sins in my son. I don't have to impute their sins to my son and judge him. Nope. God says, no, I'm going to, I'm righteous. Every sin has to be judged. Every sin. Not one sin can go unpunished or God is not righteous. God's saying, I, I'm going to be proved righteous when I do this 
so that it can, if you want to look at it, you can, but this is how I operate in righteousness. Every sin has to meet its judgment. And Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, so that's 325. And then 26, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. So past and present, well, present even as we read these words, it continues to be present. So that means it's future. And so that means that Christ paid for the sins, past, present, and future. Every sin of every person that would ever be born on planet Earth was imputed to Christ on the cross and judged. Every sin, every person, whatever, we got to say it that way. Because that doesn't just say, okay, all our sins are play, paid and we just go skipping along. It says that God is righteous. He has to do this because he's righteous. That's what he has to do. If it was up to us, we'd say, oh, just forget about my sin, God. Can't you do that? I mean, so what? You know I had good intentions when I did that sin. God, no compromise. Uh, whether you knew it was a sin, whether you didn't know it was a sin, God knew it. And he, 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 it has to meet its judgment. Back to our notes. Let's keep going. Just got a few more points to make here. So Christ is alive today. And point B, this is 3B. Christ is alive today. He is not dead. <laughs> and he is all in for the Father's plan. So when we think about Christ, we don't have to talk about him objectively. Christ is alive. <laughs> he's here. He's not here uh, physically, but he's alive in heaven, as we're going to see. He's at the right hand of God. It's also interceding for us. It's not like he... We can just keep talking about him as though he's dead. He's alive. And what's he doing? Is he campaigning against us? Is he changing his mind and saying, no, I don't think the church is a valid organization. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. I'm changing my mind. No. Uh -uh. He's all in to the Father's plan. All. It's not some. He, he, he just... Everything that the Father has planned, he says, I want to, I love the Father and I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. So let's look at this last phrase, and I think we're running out of time. We have just enough time, hopefully, to complete it. So, more than that, who was raised to life, and this last phrase is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So the first thought is the right hand of God. What is, in Scripture, the right hand of God? It means, uh, it's terrible for you people who are left-handed, if, if that's you. Well, this is right hand of God. Never the left hand of God. Okay. But the right hand is the place of highest honor. That's what it means. So, if you know, he says, even in Matthew 25, he says, those who are on my left depart from me, you who work iniquity into everlasting fire or something. On the right, he says, come, blessed of, uh, you know, you come on into the kingdom, right? So, so the right hand is always, metaphorically speaking, the place of highest honor. Christ is not just raised, right, but he is raised to the right hand. And 
What, what does that mean? If we turn to Ephesians 1, 16, 23, I'm going to read it. Ephesians 1, 16. Now, you've read, uh, this is all about the mystery, right? Uh, I don't know if I want to go through 16. I'll go to 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. So the riches relate to our, the baptism of the Spirit and our identification with Christ. But that identification also is... Uh, we are, we are also identifying with the Father through Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And, and that's one way to look at it. But then he talks about power. Let's look at the next phrase. And, verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he gives an analogy of what it's like. That power, <coughs> excuse me, is the same as the mighty strength. Okay, so now we're going to talk about what it's like. Like when we talk about Christ was raised from the dead, let's just see where, where he is. We're talking about the man, Christ Jesus, who is also in hypostatic union, who is also God. Now, God hasn't been raised, but we're talking about the man, Christ Jesus, who died. God couldn't die, so it's the man, Christ Jesus. But what is he like now? He's... Once he's raised, he now has two natures, human, and he's always had the divine. So, so let's look at it. He says um, uh, in verse 20, uh, he exerted when he raised, this is, the power is the same as his mighty strength, he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. So there we have right hand again. So obviously if Christ is, who is a man, who is sitting there at his right hand, in the place of highest honor, who are we talking about? Who raised him up like that? That's part of the, the mystery doctrine of really not talking about what happened to Christ, but what is in store for us. That's our destiny. It is like what happened to Christ because we identify with the person of Christ. Everything that happened to him, well, we are his body, the fullness of him, as we're going to read. So, so what does that say now? Let's keep going. It says, verse 20, He exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, not just above, far above, all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed, notice, what's all things? All things under his feet. What's all things? Creation. Whether they be thrones, dominions, powers, uh, things visible, invisible. He's talking about whether it's angelic creation, any spiritual creation, any physical creation. We're talking about a man. The man, Christ Jesus, in hypostatic union, is over 
all things. And really, when he says that, really he's talking about, as I have to keep reminding you, because you keep thinking it's all about Christ. He's talking about us. That's what we have in the mystery. That's what was hidden. The fact that we have been raised to this height over all things. That's what is. How can we describe this? What's been given to you in the mystery? How can we relate this to you? Well, I can tell you what it's like. It's just like this. It's the same as this. And what, what analogy does he give? He gives the Lord Jesus Christ and the height to which he was raised and the place of highest honor to which he possesses. This, this is our destiny. This is our heritage as those who have been born in this particular age. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So Christ is not just uh, our brother. He's our Lord. Right? That's how we have to see the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's the head, we're the body. If we were going to use that analogy, that means it is his will, his uh, direction that we follow. And where did he get it from? Just to note the Father. Right? That's where he got it all from. And that's when we submit to Christ, we're really submitting to the Father's plan. And he's everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. A lot to discuss there. We won't go there, but we'll go back to our notes. So that's what it means where it says that we've been raised to the right hand. Right? And he's also interceding for us. Now, even though it was an analogy, that's happened to Christ too. That's where he is. He would never go back on that. Point B, and it says, he, he is at the right hand of God, and, it's a big and, he is also interceding for us. Who, who else is interceding for us? Romans eight twenty six and 27. That's God the Holy Spirit. Even when we, in our weaknesses, we don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Holy Spirit, he understands who we are. He understands the mind of God. And he uh, intercedes on behalf of, of us. Spirit himself with groans, that words that cannot be spoken. He, the special language that he and the Father have. They, he communicates our weaknesses to the Father. He is also working on our behalf. So if he's doing that, Holy Spirit, he's certainly not against us. If Christ is interceding for us, he's not against us. We can't think that Christ is against us. If, if that's going, if he's in heaven, raised to the high, place of highest honor, and he's also interceding for us, nothing can turn God from his eternal purpose. Nothing. Not one thing that the Jews can object to, even though they don't like it. This is the plan of God. So let's finish this thought with point number C. It's confirmed. Father's plan is legitimate. There's nothing that anybody could do to uh, short-circuit this plan, to stop it in any way, to minimize it. God's plan is going to be 
Uh, it's going to be the reality. It is the reality. And we'll come to whatever the, uh, like it says, that we will get the full adoption of sons. All of that's going to happen for sure. So God has the sovereignty to make whatever choices he pleases. He has sovereignty. This is the Father's plan. This is his eternal purpose. So he hid it in himself. This is. He has the right to bring this reality. Just as he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That is what happened. That, that's true. Even though the world creation hadn't happened yet. The reason why creation happened is so that God could fulfill that choice in Christ. So, so just just to note, this is when we say it's legit. A lot of people will say it's not legit, and they really don't. And it could be Gentiles saying that. And you would think, well, why would a Gentile say that? They're included in the plan. God takes from Jews and Gentiles and makes them one new man in Christ. With all of the privileges and opportunities and honor that is bestowed upon us, why would we want to minimize in any way what God has done? Why, why not embrace it? Why not say, okay, this is the plan that you have chosen? I, I'm, behind, I'm behind you 100%, Lord. Father, teach me. I want to be led into all truth. But that's not what we find. So not only do we have an uphill battle to fight when we're trying to teach somebody about grace. They don't understand that it's a free gift. What are you working for? People working their whole life. And still, you, you will never get it. Like Larnell in his song said, Forever running, but losing the race. And that's exactly how it is for people pursuing salvation by works. So in this sense, we, we have to fight with people just to talk about salvation by grace. And then on top of that, our job is not over. We want to, it is also our, our, our objective to lead those people to the full knowledge of the truth, right? If we can. That means we have to continue to teach until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure and stature of Christ. That is our objective. And then you have people who object to the Father's play. Now they want to fight you on the fact that, oh, wait a minute, Israel is you know, a factor Right, we have to make sure we uh, keep the law. We have to make sure we, you know, be are obedient to Israel, even though they were of this world. We are not of this world. So we have our work cut out for us. We have plenty to do, and and I would also say our time is limited. So we just have to make sure we're about our Father's business. We have to stop as our time is out now, but uh, we will uh, continue with this thought next week. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? 
Shall that be enough to separate us? We'll talk more about it next week. Let's bow our head as we close. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of fellowshipping with you and the other believers who are on this call. We are praying, Father, as we are in this world. Give us wisdom. Help us to know that we can reach out and pray at any time, whenever there is anxiety, whenever we're worried, whatever the case may be. If we need more wisdom, we can always ask. And we know you will provide. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And as we're in this world, Father, we pray that you will help us make the right choices. Give us wisdom. We pray for those who are suffering in this world. We mention those who are suffering from the pandemic. And also, we're praying for this country. It's so divided. And that uh, you would bring healing. And that we can continue to serve you on the battlefield, even in this country. So, Father, we, we pray for wisdom for those who have the rule over us, that they may make positive decisions as well, so that we can continue to have peace and preach the gospel. Thank you for those who have, who have come and given us their time this evening. All these things we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Amen.